so many of Alexandria's books would save it. When the Patriarch of Alexandria had the Patriarch of Constantinople declared a heretic, his followers had taken this copy of the Geographia with them into their desert exile. There it had been translated into Syriac, and then later into Arabic. The original copy had, of course, long since perished, but a few of those Arabic translations survived. The last of those had then, somehow, found its way into a bookseller's stock and was now in Maximus Planudi's hands. The copy of the Geographia the monk now so fiercely bartered for was not complete, at least not in the way that he wished it to be, for there was a text, but no maps. We cannot be sure now that Ptolemy's original version even had maps, but that was what Maximus Planudis wanted, and having secured his prize, he returned to the monastery at Cora, where he began the painstaking task of noting all the details in the text and turning them back into the thing he craved, a series of maps. Soon a new rumour was flying around the Mediterranean. Planudes had a map of the world, Ptolemy's map of the world. The story came to the ears of the Byzantine emperor Andronicus II Paleologus, who ordered a copy made for himself. Soon others were reconstructing, dividing, and improving the maps. By the 14th century, the 26 maps of the original version had been divided into 64, and one of these copies was obtained in 1400 by the Florentine patron Palla Strozzi, who persuaded a Byzantine scholar to translate the work from Planudi's Greek into Latin. Now the Geographia could at last be read by the academics of Europe, who, thanks to Christianity, retained their knowledge of Latin, but had become largely ignorant of Greek. This version, finally finished around 1410, came into the royal courts of Europe at a time when interest in the exploration of the world, an interest that had slept for so long, was finally being rekindled. But none of the Renaissance princes who collected these wonders was more passionate than the Pope. If there were new lands to discover, then the papacy wanted to ensure that Catholicism travelled there with the explorers. So the little book that Planudes had discovered years before made its way to the Apostolic Library at the Vatican, along with many of its lavishly illustrated descendants. From the Vatican, copies would then be sent out across Europe. One of those would change the world. Introduction for Alexandria lies, as it were, at the conjunction of the whole world. Dio Chrysostom, Orations. Most of us take it for granted that two cities, Athens and Rome, completely dominated the classical world. We are well aware that their achievements had a profound effect on Western civilization. Their legacy is still apparent from the architecture of our public buildings to the phrasing of our laws. Even democracy itself was, we are told, their gift. But this is, in fact, a distorted view of history, fueled by generations awed by the might of Rome and the ingenuity of Athens, and perhaps a little too keen to take native historians of both cities at their word. In fact, there was a third city that, at its height, dwarfed both of these in wealth and population as well as in scientific and artistic achievement, largely overlooked by history this city had a unique soul. While Greece and Rome spread their influence through trade and war, this city set out on another adventure, not at the point of a sword, but on the tip of a pen. 
Its triumph was to be a conquest of the mind, led not by legions of soldiers, but by dynasties of scholars navigating on a sea of books. This city was Alexandria. Within a few generations of its foundation, the city was the marvel of its age, not just for its size and beauty, its vast palaces, safe harbours and fabled lighthouse, or even for being the world's greatest emporium, its central market. Alexandria was built on knowledge, and at its heart was not a treasury, but the greatest library and museum of antiquity. Encouraged by the ruling Ptolemaic dynasty, this institution became the meeting place and crucible of all the great cultures and minds of the ancient world. It proved an intellectual magnet, attracting generation upon generation of the finest scholars, philosophers, poets, and inventors. Egyptians, Greeks, Jews, Babylonians, Persians, Gauls, Phoenicians, and Romans flocked here stimulating huge advances in mathematics, astronomy and astrology, alchemy, optics, medicine and anatomy, grammar, geography, philosophy and theology, in short, the sum total of the wisdom of the ancient world. In these halls the true foundations of the modern world were laid, not in stone, but in ideas. There was never anything like the great library and museum before, nor has there been since the single place on earth where all the knowledge in the entire world was gathered together, every great play and poem, every book of physics and philosophy, the key to understanding, simply everything. That institution aimed to accumulate every book written, even from as far afield as India, and at its zenith it was said to contain three-quarters of a million scrolls. Here were not only the works of the brilliant scholars of their own time, but also those of their illustrious predecessors, of Homer, Pythagoras, and Herodotus, of Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, names that might otherwise be unknown to us. Other libraries since have held more books. Indeed, today the Library of Congress in Washington and the British Library in London hold between them nearly every book printed in the last two hundred years, and many more besides. But they are not complete, not least because most of the knowledge of the first thousand years of Western civilization is missing. These were the books that formed the Library of Alexandria, and only a handful have been seen since that library's tragic destruction. All that remains is perhaps one percent of the works that were once lodged there, the chance survivors of that shipwreck of human achievement. The Romance of Athens and the might of Rome have overshadowed the Hellenistic civilization spawned by the vast conquests of Alexander. Somehow the people of this place and their extraordinarily modern ideas have fallen down the gap between where classical Greece ended and imperial Rome began. So our first aim in this book is to look again at Alexandria, to reconstruct the life of the institutions that made it unique, the library and the museum and to breathe life back into a city that was once the centre of the world. Physically there is almost nothing left of ancient Alexandria, but among the drowned ruins in her harbour, in the fragments of the books that survive from her great library, and hidden among the works of later authors, lie the keys to this city of wonders. 
It was a city of mechanical marvels, of an anatomy school where the circulation of the blood was understood two thousand years before it was previously thought possible, of geographers who knew the earth was spherical and travelled around the sun, of philosophers who even conjectured that everything was made of microscopically small particles called atoms, from the Greek atomos, indivisible. This was the home of Euclid, the father of geometry, whose books are still in print two thousand years after his death, and of Archimedes, of Eureka fame. Here, too, was the young Galen, the greatest doctor and physiologist of the age, and Claudius Ptolemy, the father of both astronomy and geography, and Apollonius, the author of Jason and the Argonauts. Stranger names, but no less influential, include Eratosthenes, the first man to measure the circumference of the earth, Aristarchus, the first to envisage a heliocentric solar system, Plotinus, a founder of Neoplatonism, Clement of Alexandria, a father of Christian theology, Arius, perhaps the first great Christian heretic, and Philo, the radical Jewish theologian. These are just a few of the host of geniuses who walked and talked, debated and denounced, read copiously, and finally set pen to paper in the great library and museum attached to the royal palaces of Alexandria. And while some of these legions of scholars are still household names, remembered for their mastery of one or two fields of study, it was the declared aim of all to achieve mastery in all fields of study, all branches of knowledge. And some actually achieved this, turning themselves truly into philosophers, lovers of wisdom, and reaching intellectual heights never achieved before or since. The story of each of these characters tells a part of the history of Alexandria, a history peopled by the political giants of the ancient world, Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, Mark Antony, and Cleopatra. Our aim in this book is to explore, within the framework of this turbulent political history, the ways in which human knowledge and understanding developed and evolved in this extraordinary city, to trace the evolution of the Alexandrian way, which stimulated a dramatic acceleration in our appreciation not just of science and the